Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 340. Does the New Testament teach that Jesus is truly divine? Loke versus Tuggy, part two. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, you'll hear my edit of the final portion of my debate about the deity of Christ with Dr. Andrew Loke. You'll hear our discussion portion, and then following that, we'll have brief five-minute closing statements. The plan here was for us to have 40 minutes of more or less unstructured dialogue with the moderator stepping in only if needed. And I must say, by the way, that I thought that Jordan Hampton did an excellent job as a moderator. I could hardly think of a way that he could have done this better. Dr. Loke and I were polite and respectful, but being a couple of professors, uh, we each had a lot to say and were eager to get in there and make our points. Like a good boxing referee, he had to kind of separate us a couple of times. As I listen back to this in working on this episode, I realize that there are a lot of loose ends of argument here. We did connect solidly on a number of points, but then there were a number of points that we couldn't get to. I feel like we could have easily gone on for another hour, although we were probably both getting pretty tired by this point. I think in the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'll spend some time reflecting on these exchanges and talking about some of those loose ends. Our discussion time starts when the moderator invited Dr. Loke to begin. Okay, thank you. So Dale just now, you know, he claims that uh, I appeal to unclear texts and ignore a ton of counterexamples, right? But actually, I already responded to all your counterexamples in my first rebuttal. And so let me go to the texts that you claim are unclear. First Corinthians 8, 6, is that an unclear text? You try to say that uh, tapanta can mean all kinds of things, and I didn't disagree with that, right? I agree that tapanta can refer to other things, but I mentioned that the context and the phrasing and the genre, all these points indicate that tapanta is referring to all created things and not to new creation, which obviously doesn't include heaven and earth or idols, right? Don't you agree? No, I don't agree. The context doesn't require creation in any way. In fact, it's kind of weird that Paul should sneak in a doctrine of you know a direct and indirect creator in this context of dealing with food that's been sacrificed to idols. He says, for us, there's one God and one Lord, right? This is all we need. So the reading I presented fits that just as well as the idea that he's talking about creation. No, he's not just talking about food, right? He's talking about idols, and he said that the idols are so-called gods are nothing, right? The idols are like nothing. Obviously, talking about referring to the ancient, the Jewish mindset, you know, the idols. You know, uh, in, oh, yeah, he's presupposing monotheism, yeah. Right. And that one God is the Father. Idols, yeah. nothing, only the Lord make the heavens and the earth, right? The Lord, the Lord make the heavens yeah. in Psalm 96. That is the background, and you are ignoring the background. No, I'm not. My reading fits the context just as well as yours, and yours has the problem that, as you mentioned, and I'm not really clear how you get around this, the Old Testament asserts exactly one involved in creation. Okay, well, that's the Father, the ultimate source, so there's not room for another creator there. So you should be looking for a different interpretation of this passage. You keep insisting that your interpretation fits the context when I already explained that it doesn't, right? Because the context is con- talking about the reality of God, right? And 
Yeah, you've asserted that it doesn't, but I don't think you've shown that it doesn't fit the context. Those are it doesn't fit the context because things. it's talking about reality of both, as I said, <laughs> right? And it doesn't fit the phrasing as well, right? So there are two points against your thesis, and you haven't rebutted any of them. What do you mean it doesn't fit the phrasing? That doesn't even make any All sense. All things come true something. This is a monotheistic, yeah. this is a Jewish monotheistic phrasing to talk, to talk yeah. about the creation of the cosmos. In, we find it in Josephus, we find it in Hebrews, we find it in you know, Philo. We find it in Romans eleven thirty six, right? Yeah, here's another use, Romans eight thirty two. He did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us. Will he not with him also give us tapanta, all things? That right? is not saying that's that all one, things That's one case true. where it doesn't mean creation. No, you're ignoring the phrasing. I'm talking about the phrasing, all things come true something, right? This phrasing, true something, all yeah. things coming true something. It's referring, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a monotheistic context for creation. Yeah, when, so wouldn't, it, it, wouldn't you agree, Dr. Things, Loke? Wait, 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 wait a second, slow come, down. The Father gives us all, alongside all things. That is not saying that all things come true something. That is not. Wouldn't you agree that all the blessings of uh, salvation come from the Father through the Son? Uh, Don't now, you agree but that, that phrasing is not used in the New Testament, right? That, that phrasing, when the, the, the phrasing from God, from Him and through Him are all things, right? That phrasing in Romans 11. You're switching to a context where only the Father is in view. That's what God means there. And it is a context of creation. But here you've got God and the one Lord who's a man. So it's not obvious that the context is creation. No, you're, you're assuming, you're, you're begging the question, but assuming that it's just a man. When I already mentioned to you that kurios, when we look at the genre, right, and the yeah. context can refer to Yahweh himself in, in the opening of First Corinthians, right? Uh, yeah. kurios, right? How can that be a human being? Where do you find epicaleo use of human beings? You don't. Uh, look, there's there's a lot. Yeah, Jesus has a unique status, and he can be called upon. That's part of his status as current head of the church, you know, and the one who's coming to establish the kingdom. So it's a, sta- a fairly standard Unitarian view that Jesus can be invoked and prayed to. So that he is invoked doesn't do anything. In fact, if you want to look at the start of all of Paul's writings, in basically all of them, he mentions God, and then he also mentions somebody else. And so they fit my view perfectly. They don't fit the view that both of them are gods somehow. And this idea that there are there's a there's persons within God, this just is not a New Testament teaching. That's just a later anachronism that you're putting back in the first century. The God that's talked about in the New Testament is the Father. There's some very rare exceptions where God could mean uh, Satan, or it could arguably mean the Son in about seven passages. But God never means a multipersonal God. And so by defending this kind of Catholic orthodoxy, you're just, you're reading later ideas back into the texts, including the idea that Jesus has to be fully divine, which is a fourth century idea. Okay. Now they, they, you're you are putting a lot of points together, right? When, I, when, I'm, when I'm just talking about first Corinthians, you're talking a lot of other things. Yeah. There's a difference in approach here because you want to hunker down on the favorite proof text. And I want to take a broader view that includes everything that's said, but also history as well. This is an important difference of approach. Uh, well, that is not good exegesis, actually, because in exegesis, we have to think about what Paul is saying within the genre, the context, right? You cannot just bring in all these things together. Now, I can respond to all your points we mentioned, but let's focus on... I think we're both doing exegesis, yes, and I think we both agree that context is king. Okay, so first of all, the phraseology, you don't find anything that supports your thesis for new creation, right? Uh, so the, 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 the phrasing, all things from true is referring to the creation of all things, not to new creation. So this is the first point which you haven't rebut. And the second point is that when you talk about opening, you say that, well, Paul also mentioned other people alongside him, Paul also mentioned Silas, all this. But of course, those people are not the source of blessing, right? 
Right, they're so not the slow down. Slow down. No, let, slow let me down. finish this. Uh, right, so whereas Christ is called blessing, right, coming peace, grace, and peace from Father and Jesus Christ, right. So He is also the one from whom peace comes. Now, this human, normal human beings cannot be the source of peace. Not even the Messiah can be the source of peace uh, unless unless He is divine, right? The shalom, right? It comes from God, and that is understood in the genre of the letters of the. Uh, the letters invoke a deity, right? Doesn't doesn't invoke human beings as the source of blessing. Okay, stop, then, stop. Slow down. Yeah. Slow down. Let me get a Dr. word. In, okay, here's two contexts. I'm going to give you two contexts in Paul where he's undisputably, I think, talking about new creation, and he says tapanta. Okay, one is in Second Corinthians five seventeen. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, tapanta has become new. You keep repeating your points, okay. which I already replied, right? You keep and, saying uh, that. You see, no, all things, me... Colossians 1.15, it's talking about the current status of the exalted Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Which things? Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, those all things, right? So it's like the unseen and the seen realm of rulership or something like that that tapanta have been created through him and for him. Okay. So those are two contexts in Paul's undisputed writings where he's talking about tapanta and new creation is precisely what's in view. So nothing about the from God and through Christ demands your reading. You're pounding the table and giving a merely possible interpretation. And I'm saying that's not the only possible interpretation. Unfortunately, you've hinged your case on this merely possible interpretation. Mine's just as good as yours as far as the context, as best I can tell. Well, not at all. You keep saying that the word tapanta is used in those other passages, which I never deny. I'm not just saying tapanta. I'm saying that, you know, ek from and they are true. When these are used together with tapanta, you don't find this in Second Corinthians when it talks about new creation. You don't find this in Romans when it talks about, you know, other things, but you don't find this in all the other passages you cited. So all the other passages you cited in response to my view is are all irrelevant because they don't use ek, they don't use dia for Jesus Christ. No, so you're you're ignoring the phrasing. Yeah, the phrasing just doesn't demand your interpretation. Unfortunately, it'd be a nice. It'd be nice if we could solve the interpretive problem just by looking at a couple of words, but it just doesn't work that way. I granted to you that Romans ten thirty six is talking about creation. And you granted to me that it does make sense to say that the new creation or the blessings of the new creation, like salvation, come from God and through Christ. Okay, that's my reading. And to say that sometimes from God through Christ means creation, uh, sorry, that, that from and through refer to creation. Yeah, that's not in dispute. But again, you haven't shown that this passage demands your reading. Well, I've already shown that the expression is not the one that you propose for other texts, right? The expression is not found in other texts you propose. And it's also fallacious to say that my interpretation just hinge on the phrasing. As I said, the phrasing is, is only one of the two arguments I offered. In fact, multiple arguments, not just two. The phrasing is one thing. You don't find the same phrasing, even though you find, the, you, even though you find, find you know, you, you try to claim that you find similar ideas about new creation. But then that is not what Paul actually says. The formula is different, right? The other point I mentioned is that the context, you also didn't rebut this point about you know, the reality of God, the historical, the, the background of the, the idols are nothing, right? It's obviously referring to God the Father. Why is God the Father the real God? Why is he the true God in a Jewish monotheistic background? Obviously because he's the creator of the heavens and earth, not new creation. You're ignoring this point. No, I didn't ignore that point. And uh, 
that you still have the one creator being the father insisted on even in all the early creeds. This doctrine of two creators was introduced in the second century and was immediately objected to by many Christians. Right? All the early creeds, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. It's not traditional in this time to refer to two creators or to say that Jesus is a creator. And it's because of what I mentioned in my rebuttal, which is that the idea of a creator is the idea of being the ultimate source of the cosmos, not just being involved somehow. I really think we should move on from this passage. I think we're spinning our wheels at this point, and you raised a whole bunch of other things that I want to discuss. Can I respond to this point? Because this is quite important. You know, because they all keep saying that you know, the Father equals the one God, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you keep making the assumption, that I already, but I already explained in my opening statement that this is false. The text doesn't say that the Father equals the one God, right? As I said, it can be taken as you know, the Father representing the one God. He is one person within the one God. So he can represent, he can, I, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't imply equivalence, and, and therefore your objection is, uh, is without basis. Equivalence is implied in many ways, which we can talk about if we have time. Yeah, how, we can how talk about this. Grounds this for is that. okay. Dale, since this is the point that Dr. Loke raised, you can respond to this. You'll get the last word on this point. And then we can shift to something that Dr. Tuggy wants to raise. Dr. Loke, I'll give you the last word on, on that point. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I raise the issue of the meaning of the Greek word kurios, which we translate as Lord, as applied to Jesus in the New Testament. I don't have anything else to say about 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but I want to raise the topic of uh, why he thinks Lord has to mean Yahweh in passages like this. If you look at a lexicon, it will say there are four meanings for kurios in the New Testament. One, it can be God. It can be a substitute for the divine name, particularly when quoting the Old Testament. A second meaning is it's a title of Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And then it can mean master or sir, but those probably aren't relevant to what we're talking about. So in no way do any of the New Testament writers in calling Jesus the Lord imply that he's a person within God or that he's fully divine. This usage in the New Testament is based on Psalm 110.1, where Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the most cited verse uh, that's from the Old Testament. So The Lord typically is a title of Christ in distinction from God, and it doesn't imply divinity. And this doesn't seem like a controversial point to me, but you seem to be thinking that, no, it's used as a substitute for the divine name, so it must mean that. But, you know, look in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it mentions one God and one Lord, right? These are two different ones. There's there's no suggestion that they're parts of God, but that's what your theology is. Okay, uh, thank you for your comment. So let me respond by first clarifying that I never said that the word curious must always mean Yahweh, right? Mm-hmm. In my opening statement, I already clarified that the word curious can refer to other kinds of things, including a human master. I didn't deny this. 
so, so the word curious can have can mean different things, and so we need to look at the context and the genre, right? And other we need to use other principles of hermeneutics. And so, in in my use of Jesus, is it just referring to a human master? I already explained in the opening statement that you cannot, because no human master is the one through whom are all things, the cosmos. At this point, I already mentioned just now. And moreover, no human master is ever said to be the object of epikaleo. So um, when you, you don't find epikaleo, believers calling to a human master, right? Call upon. You don't find this in the Septuagint, right? You don't find this, uh, you know, you only find Yahweh being used. And then the genre of First Corinthians, I already mentioned just now, right? That it, letters begin with an invocation of, of God. So when you take all these points together, it's quite obvious that Paul, when he used call upon the curious Lord Jesus at the beginning of his letter and later on saying that all things come through him, it is quite obvious that this curious cannot be a human master in this case, right? In this case, it must mean Yahweh. Wow. Okay. We know that Jesus has been appointed to this high office now, and so I think that's why he can be called upon. Admittedly, that's very unusual. You're not going to find another example of another person with the status that the exalted Jesus has. I was going to say something else, but it slipped my mind about what you just said. Um, but I want to talk about Jesus dying. And there's two questions, Dr. Luke, I have about your Crypsis model. One question is, it seems that the main move you're making is that the divine qualities will be located within the pre-conscious of Jesus. But the problem with that is that the ones that you discuss arguably are mental. The ones that you focus on are mental qualities, and so they might be the kind of thing that could be located in a preconscious. But not all of the divine qualities are like that, right? Like existing ase, existing eternally, those are not mental properties uh, existing necessarily. And they look like they clash with humanity. That's one question. But another question is, it seems to me that when you talk about Christ having a body and a soul, there's one soul. Um, it's both divine and human. You say this one soul has a human aspect and a divine aspect. It seems to me that you're wanting to locate the divine qualities in the divine part, and you're wanting to locate the human qualities in the human part of that one soul. Okay, but the divine qualities include omnipotence, omniscience, perfect goodness. Those imply being a person. If you take all the essential human qualities, arguably those imply also being a person. So it looks like within the one Jesus, even though you say there's one soul, it looks like one part of that is a human self and another part of that is the divine self. It seems to me that you're dividing the qualities like that. And so you want to say just the human part died or something. Is that right? Do you have two Jesuses, two sons within this one soul? Okay, uh, thank you for your question. So you're asking me about the, the, the pre divine preconscious model that I offered in my book. So let me begin with some general remarks before I answer your question specifically. Now, the first general remark I want to make is that our debate topic today doesn't hinge on the divine preconscious model, right? So the divine preconscious model, as I see it, is a way to make sense of the biblical data which talks about Jesus being truly divine and being truly human. So how do we make sense of that? It is not the data itself. So it's just like you know, the pilot wave model of quantum mechanics, right? It's a way to try to make sense of how quantum mechanics can have a wave-like wave properties and also particle-like properties. 
but it is not the evidence for the particle or the wave-like properties itself, right? It's a way to try to make sense of them. So we need to distinguish between these these two issues. So our our debate today, our discussion today, concerns whether the New Testament teaches that Jesus is truly divine, right? So we have to look at the data, right? The New Testament data, and the data are already given the reasons, the just evidence to show that the New Testament does talk about Jesus as truly divine. Your question concerning the divine precursors model doesn't affect the data. It only affects how we try to make sense of the data. Okay, so this is the first remark I want to make. And the second point of clarification I want to make is, because just now you also claim that my model implies that Jesus was a liar, that he he knew that. You know, yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, yes. Yeah, so now, actually, that is a misunderstanding of my model, because on my model, the word oidon, as I said earlier on during my, my presentation, the word during my first rebuttal, the word oidon can legitimately be translated as aware. So therefore, no one is aware, not even the son. And on my model, Jesus was truly unaware. Uh, so that does so he's not lying, right? Because the word can be translated as aware. So so no one is aware. So Jesus is indeed unaware on my model. So he he was not lying, contrary to what you allege. Yeah, that doesn't fit the context, by the way, because he goes on to apply the point that uh, you guys don't know the day and the hour, and therefore you have to be watchful. And surely he's not allowing that uh, they might actually know the day and hour in their preconscious. When he says no, he just means they don't know in any way. Okay, but that's how any reader takes his statement. He doesn't say, I don't consciously know it. He says, I don't know it with no qualification. If you ask me, do I know what the capital of Uzbekistan is? And I tell you, I don't know it. But in fact, in my head, I know that if I dig around in my memory for 10 seconds, I could, I'll be able to recall it. Or if I just say, nope, I don't know that. I've lied to you because I know that I do know it. If you just say no without qualification, people are going to think it means no in, in any way. And that's why your view is a problem there. Uh, no, let me clarify. Just now when you say that my view say that Jesus is using the word no without any qualification. Now, that assumes that oidon is translated as no. But I already said you know, this assumption is unproven because the word oidon can legitimately be translated as aware. Right, so he's using a, a, a yes, no, and I'm no, using no, the context to show that that's no. inadequate because he can't let mean me, that let me about his that. disciples. He yeah, can't yeah, so. mean just only aware. It makes okay, no sense. So in in the context, it can mean awareness too, because you know, Jesus is saying, you "No, know, what Jesus said is true." Right, no one is aware, not even the disciples. So, but, but you are you're asking. So, can it could it be that the disciples is actually know, but they are they are not aware? Well, but that is not the point that Jesus is concerned about. Jesus is talking using the word aware because. The disciples want to know the day of the hour and no one can tell whatever that he's not aware of. And that's why Jesus used the word aware because he is not willing to tell the disciples the day because this is something that the father wants to keep uh, hidden. So the, so the emphasis here is not about what the disciples may know or may not know, but the, uh, the emphasis here is about what the son is or is not willing to reveal, right? No, that's not right. The entire point of it is it starts in verse 35. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. He's not allowing that. Maybe you guys know it in your preconscious, but you're just not directly aware of it. That'd be a strange thing to say. Like, it just means you don't know in any way. Well, that's what he means just above when he said that he didn't know the day or the hour. He didn't know it in any way. But that would be a lie, according to your model. No, of course, I agree that no, I, I'm not. I'm also not saying that the disciples know, but they are not aware. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that the emphasis of the passage, right, is about what the Son is willing to reveal and whether the disciples is aware or not. Because the disciples were not indeed not aware. That's why they ask, and of course they're not aware because they don't know, right? 
And if, if they know, then obviously they can easily be aware. I mean, they can easily recall what they, what they know. Obviously, they can't recall what they know. And that's why they want Jesus to reveal to them. And Jesus is not willing to reveal what he, Jesus cannot reveal what he, know, what he is not aware of. And so my explanation fits the context too. I don't think you're really addressing the difficulty. I mean, the writer's not going to violently switch between knowing, mean, meaning merely being directly conscious, aware of it versus knowing in any way. He's just using it in one sense. And the, the best sense that you can use to understand the passage is that he means knowing it in any way. And that's why, by the way, early people like Irenaeus, they just say, look, Jesus says there's things he doesn't know. So if we don't know things, I mean, that's not a big deal. Even Jesus doesn't know some things, right? That's the obvious meaning of it. Let me, well, let me chime in really quick. Me, Since this is Dr. Tuggy's objection, Dr. Loke, I'll give you the last word on this particular objection, and then we can shift to okay. an objection raised by Dr. Loke. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so there's one more point I want to add is that, I mean, the, the Jews emphasize a lot about function. And as, as they will point out, right, in the context of this passage, right, Jesus is telling them to get ready, right? No, no, I mean, to, to be watchful. And so watchfulness, right, concerns. Is, is, is functionally related to awareness. I mean, if you're if you're not aware, then obviously you 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 want to be watchful, right? I mean, you may know things in your subconscious, but then you know that, that doesn't affect the way you behave. What affects your behavior is what you are you are conscious or not conscious or not conscious of. So consciousness, awareness is the function, is the emphasis here. It is related to whether the disciples will get ready or not, and it's also related to whether Jesus will reveal or not. And therefore, and that's why the, the, the word awareness fits the context. The interpretation of awareness fits the context perfectly. Okay, so now, if I've been following along correctly, Dr. Loke raised the first objection. It was based around uh, how to interpret 1 Corinthians 8. So you all had a little dialogue about that. Then we shifted. Uh, Dr. Tuggy kind of raised two objections. The first one was about the meaning of Lord or Curios, and then also this point about Jesus being a liar saying that uh, he did not know something. So now I'm going to shift back. Oh, oh, to wait, I, haven't, I haven't responded to Dale's another point. I mean, actually, he also he raised a point about uh, the soul or something. I haven't responded to that. Oh, whether he has two Jesuses in his model. Yeah, two yeah. Jesuses. I think that's an important question. So uh, okay. you know, I think I should respond to that before we move to another topic. So they basically asked me, my model, does it uh, imply actually two, two cells? Two? So, so let me clarify my model. Um, on my model, Jesus has one soul and therefore is one person, but this one soul has two different aspects, right? So there's a human aspect and there's also a divine aspect. And this aspect is understood as part of a concrete nature, right? So the divine aspect is part of a concrete divine nature and the human aspect is part of a concrete human nature. And yet there's only one person because there's only one soul and only one center of consciousness. Yeah, so does that answer the question or are you asking something else? Yeah, my question was, sometimes when I listen to what you're saying, it sounds like you're trying to locate the divine essential qualities in the divine part and the human qualities in the human part. But the problem is that the divine qualities, which they include things like omniscience, they imply selfhood. They imply being a person. But then you would have a divine person and a human person, which are parts of this one soul, which I take it as a crazy view. Okay, now let me try to respond to that. So being omniscient implies being a person, right? Mm -hmm. And now on, on, on my view, the person, now of course the, the, the person is the, is the whole thing, right? The person has two parts, right? The person has a divine nature and a human nature. So the person is the whole thing. It's, it's a composite, right? It's a divine human composite. So that's how I understand person. 
And the person essentially has a center of consciousness and that center of consciousness can access whatever information that is in the pre-conscious. And so in that sense, he is omniscient in that sense because he can access the information in the pre-conscious. And just now you also asked a question about a, a seity, a, a say or something like that, I, I remember. My response is to say that the person has a seity in virtue of the fact that he pre-existed the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity pre-existed the incarnation as the divine logos who has the property of a seity. And yeah, so I don't see any problem with... Yeah, you have different parts. One is ase and one isn't. But I mean, what I don't understand is it sounded like you were willing to grant that God is essentially immortal, okay? But there's one person here, that's the Son. The New Testament teaching is straight up that the Son died. Okay, well then the Son is not essentially immortal because it's a contradiction for an essentially immortal thing to die. Where does that kind of reasoning go wrong in your view, Dr. Lope? Well, the reasoning goes wrong in the inference, as I said earlier on during my presentation, that one thing can have two different parts. So, for example, I can be bleeding in respect of my leg, but not bleeding in respect of my arm. And likewise, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, can be immortal in respect of his divine nature. His divine nature doesn't stop breathing, but he also has a, he, he took up a human nature, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. He took up this human nature and therefore was able to die on the cross in respect of this human nature. I mean, he, his human nature includes a human body with a lungs, with heart, the heart can stop beating, the Lungs can stop breathing. Yeah, you're saying humanity implies mortality, but divinity implies immortality. And it's just one self. It's one person. You can't have one both being mortal and not mortal. No, I already said one self can have two different parts, one of which is mortal, the other part is immortal. Do you think it's a New Testament teaching that a part of Jesus died, namely the human nature part died? Well, I, I think uh, Philippians chapter 2 uh, does imply something like that. So it'd be just as correct if he, if he has a part that died and a part that couldn't possibly die. You could say you could just as well say he died, or you could say he never died, right? Because of the the divine part. Uh, as I said, he died in respect of his divine nature, but he didn't. Uh, he 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 died in respect of his human nature, but he didn't die in respect of his divine nature. Yeah, I just think the New Testament teaching is the one son died, and there's no qualification about it only being a part. I just think it's the person himself who died. So I think your view doesn't fit the New Testament very well. But of, of course, no, the New Testament is not written in precise philosophical language, right? We all know that. No, it's, it's not a textbook for philosophers, right? It gives us data. And the data that was presented is that you know, Jesus obviously had a real human body, right? Which can become hungry, can become tired, and can die. I mean, that, that is the data. That is something that is uh, phenomenologically obvious. But this does not deny that he also has a divine nature. In fact, other passages in the New Testament, in fact, in Philippians chapter 2 itself, says that you know, he, he is in the morphe of God before he took up this human nature. And so he also has a divine nature, and that doesn't die. And so you know, the New Testament is not put into all this kind of precise, carefully formulated language, but he presents the data, and we can mix sense of the data by formulating our sentences precisely and to disambiguate and to distinguish you know, be between these different. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think there's a difficult fit here. Uh, well, let me, let me chime in. So we've got about eight minutes left of, of this part of the dialogue. It seems like so far, Dr. Loke raised one objection to Dr. Tuggy and Dr. Tuggy, it seems like you've raised three. So I think it's probably fair if I let Dr. Loke raise an objection to your view. Does that, does that seem, sure. is that okay? Go with ahead. You all? Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Loke asks me, 
doesn't Thomas's statement in John 20 that Jesus is my Lord and my God imply that Jesus is truly divine? Let's go back to the data of the New Testament. In John chapter 20, 28, Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And I explained in my opening statement how that implies that Jesus is truly divine. Now, I understand that, Dale, you had you responded to that verse by saying that, okay, never mind. Let, let me just stop here and then ask you, so how do you respond to that? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. It is just a preliminary point to say that just being called God doesn't mean that you're God himself or that you're fully divine because other ones are called God in scripture that are not God and not fully divine. But in this context, that's just a throwaway first point. My actual interpretation of this is context is king. In the same chapter, a little bit lower down, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, right? He praises Thomas for believing. Believing what? not believing that Jesus is God, because two sentences later, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that is to say, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Also, just above this text, Jesus has said that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, right? The one who is our Father and Jesus's Father, and the one who is our God and Jesus's God are one and the same. That's what he means. That's what the book presupposes everywhere and occasionally says in places like uh, John 17, 1 through 3. So Thomas's meaning here, you have to dig back earlier into John. So Jesus says, uh, the Father's working in me. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, not because he is the Father, but because he's like the Father and because they're about the same business. That they're about the same business is precisely what he means when he says the Father and I are one. And I think a lot of interpreters of John agree on that now. So what this is presenting is it's presenting Thomas as making the first double confession like you see in Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Ephesians chapter 4. It's a double confession of the one God and also of the one Lord. So he's saying, my Lord and my God. And yes, I know it says to him, Thomas is literally saying this, you know, right at Jesus, right to his face, my Lord and my God. But he's recognizing Jesus as truly the Lord, and he's recognizing that God is in him, which has been a theme earlier in this gospel, right? Before, he believes that Jesus is dead, but he doesn't believe that Jesus is alive again, right? He has to touch him to be sure, right? Well, now he is sure that this really is the Lord and that God is really in him. So that's how I take that. Okay, so your first point is that, uh, you know, Jesus is actually, uh, the, the book, John was written so that people can know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, right? right. The Son of God. Right. And then, uh, being the Messiah, being the Son of God, doesn't in any way deny that Jesus is also 
God and Lord and of the same ontological status as the Father, which is what the phrase implies, as I explained in my opening statement, that when these two are taken, Lord and God taken together with my, you find it in the biblical writings, it always refers to Yahweh, never to mere, a, a mere Messiah. So Jesus is not just merely a Messiah. He's not just the Son of God. He's, he's, I mean, Talking about the my Lord or the my God, my Lord can refer to Jesus. No, my Lord and my God, other than you know, talking about Jesus, may talk about in other texts, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, for example, in Psalm 35, I mentioned just now, right? My, my Psalm 35, I mentioned that you know, it, it says, though of Yahweh, my Lord and my God, it's, it's a personal confession, right? It's referring to, to Yahweh. And so Thomas is here referring to uh, Jesus. And your second point is that, um, well, but Jesus also called God the Father, my God. And Jesus, now notice that Jesus said to Mary, go and tell them that I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Okay, so, but who, who, who is the disciples' God? When we go further down, we find verse 28, 29, it says that Thomas' God is Father? No, Jesus. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have to look at it in context. You're using the unclear to interpret the clear. You're doing it backwards. The clear is what he said before. And in this verse, it's unclear if he's referring to one or two. But as I explained, what best makes sense of the context of John, right? Not reaching back to the Old Testament. What makes sense of the context of John is that he's recognizing the risen Jesus and that God is in him. God is When you explain the context of John just now, you ignore John chapter one, which talks no, about- the, the Logos, right? We can get into that it, if you want. The, yeah, all things came through him, right? He's involved in creation, right? Yes, that's right. It's God's word. This is a familiar Old Testament claim. Yeah, right? and so the, the word, right? Uh, you know, whoever receive him, right? Mm-hmm. In, in his name, right? They, they shall become, they have the right to become children of God in his name. Whose name? Is it that's the, right. That's the, word, the, the name, name of the word of God. The way I read it, there's a historical progression. It's moving towards the, quote, incarnation in verse 14. And that hasn't happened yet. So this is talking about the career of the word of God, which, you know, came to his own people, the Jews, and they didn't receive him. And all things were made through him, again, through the word of God. I know verse 12 sounds like Jesus. It's tempting to take it that way. It deliberately sounds like Jesus because Jesus' ministry is the ministry of one in whom God's eternal word or wisdom dwells. That's the meaning of the prologue. So, yeah, I know it, it does sound like Jesus. That's on purpose. But it, if you look at where it is in the sequence, it's before the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Then at that point, it's talking about Jesus, really. Before then, it's just kind of foreshadowing him. That's how I read it. This is a big discussion, John 1. Just to make one brief point about it, the Trinitarian reading doesn't make any sense. First of all, it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. Second of all, verse 1 would say, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was the Father. That won't fly. So I think the second God that's mentioned is the same as the first God that's mentioned He's personifying the word, just like happens many places in the Old Testament and notably in Proverbs 8. But he's saying, Theos ain't halagos. God is the word. Like, this isn't somebody else. It's just God. But now I'm going to go back to personifying. All things were made through him. Without him, there wasn't anything made that was made. And it's this which dwells in Jesus. And at the time, there was an equivalence kind of between word and wisdom. And so it's really a case of wisdom Christology, but just put in the, in the language of word because it's expounding Genesis 1. It's using Proverbs 8 to expound Genesis 1 is basically what's happening in the passage. But there's other literature that's relevant as well that's outside the Bible. Dr. Loke, 
where you can respond to what Dr. Tuggy just said. And then since Loke began this portion, I'm going to give Dr. Tuggy the last word. And then we're going to go to final statements, okay? All right. So just now, Dale says that uh, verse 12 sounds like Jesus, you know, but it's, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. But then you have to read again in verse 9, right? He was in the world, right? So it's already talking about after the word became flesh. We're seeing that, you know, it jumped back and forth, right? The, so it's sometimes talking about after incarnation happened and then later, you know, uh, then, uh, then saying it before the word became flesh. But it's, it's clear that uh, John is drawing an equivalence that the person who was in the world is obviously Jesus, right? And he is talking about he, it's not talking about wisdom, it's, and the, 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 who, who is he? His name, right? He, his name is Jesus, it's not wisdom. So it's the person of Jesus that is, that is talking about, that his pre-existence and all things came through him. And therefore, in this context, my Lord and my God right, actually harks back right, to you know, the beginning of John. And by the way, John doesn't confuse the father and the son, obviously. I mean, the, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says God was the word, right? So he's actually trying to say that the word is truly divine, even though he's not the same person as the father, but you know, he is nevertheless truly divine because you know, he's involved in creation, as I explained earlier on. So this is how the context of John should be understood. And so when we go back to John chapter 20, you know, it's quite clear given the context and also given the fact that my Lord and my God is a phrasing that is used of Yahweh with, with, the personal, with the possessive pronoun my added in, it is referring to a divine person. So this is clear. So this is a clear verse. And with this clear verse, we interpret another clear verse about you know, Jesus saying that to the, the disciples, I'm going to my God and your God, I already said earlier on, the reason why Jesus can call the Father his God is because Jesus was also a human being, right? He took out human nature, the word became flesh. And so from the perspective of his human nature, he has, you know, as I said earlier on, he came to the world to set a perfect example for his disciples to follow. And he couldn't have been an atheist, right? I mean, as, as a perfect human being, he must be related to God in some ways. And so for him, God you know, is... Uh, the father rep represents God. I, I mentioned this point by representation earlier on. So, so this father represents God, but he doesn't exclude himself from the Godhead. On the contrary, he later go on and talk about himself being within the Godhead as, as well. And we see this pattern repeated again and again and again, right? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, First Corinthians 8, 6, God the father, and then so the first acknowledge that the father is truly divine and then put in Jesus. In John chapter 17, again, we see the same thing. You, Father, only true God, and then put Jesus you know, into it. Right? Knowing Jesus is also required for eternal life. And you know, he was, you know, you know, he existed before all things was, right? Uh, Harks back to John chapter 1 again. So again and again, we see, we see this happening, right? So, so um, and, and also we can use this to interpret the passage you mentioned earlier on about the son being like the father, right? I and the father are one. You know, I mean, this passage is quite ambiguous. It can be interpreted in different ways, but within this larger context, which I already explained, that is actually, you know, we, we can interpret from the perspective that the son and the father do share the truly divine nature. They are part of the one divine being of God. All right, Dr. Tuggy, you get the last word on uh, this one, and then we'll shift to closing statements. I'll try to be brief. So the reason why John is using personal pronouns in the prologue there is because, as I said, he's personifying God's word, which is a common Old Testament theme. So that's why he's doing that. And I just want the listener to notice what Dr. Loke is doing. And this is traditional. He's using what I call the canon within the canon. And this is where you focus on certain favorite texts as supposedly showing that Jesus is divine. So he's saying, hey, John 1 is a clear passage. 
And I'm going to use John 1 to interpret this statement in John 20, my Lord and my God. And well, first of all, John 1 is not a clear passage. It's one of the absolute most difficult passages in the New Testament. But second, I gave the Johannine context for what Thomas says. I explained why Thomas would be recognizing not only Jesus, but the God who is in Jesus. I explained how that was a theme a couple chapters back in John. So uh, I am going by the context uh, just as much as him. We're just disagreeing about what the best overall explanation for all these things are. I'll leave it at that, and then we can do closings. When the Trinity's podcast returns, our closing statements. So thank you once again, uh, Jordan, for hosting this. And thank you, Dale, for engaging in this very uh, interesting discussion. So let me close by once again reminding the audience of the arguments which I presented for why the New Testament teach that Jesus is truly divine. Because according to the New Testament, being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being truly divine. I don't think Dale actually challenged this premise. Rather, he tried to challenge the second one. According to the New Testament, Jesus was involved in creating all things. And he disputed the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 8.6, John uh, 1, uh, for, for example. Uh, however, as I mentioned in my rebuttal, his objections to my interpretation actually fails because the phrasing of 1 Corinthians 8, 6 you know, is quite obvious. It's a monotheistic formula. And obviously, the context of 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is actually contrasting the real God with the false gods. It's not talking about new or old creation. Right? It's saying that uh, the, everything right, comes from the Father and so the all things there in, in that verse is referring to all things, <laughs> uh, heaven and earth included. And then John chapter 1, I already explained. I mean, John, Dale keeps saying that you know, it's a personification. But then the verse says very clearly, it's the name of, of Jesus, right? It's not a personification. It's talking about he, autos in the Greek, right? He, right? He, he, he was in the world, not a personification of him, right? So, and his name, right, is referring to the same guy. So uh, Dale's... Interpretation doesn't fit the context as well. And then um, Colossians, we didn't have time to go through, although Dale did claim that uh, the all things there is again referring to new creation. But again, that doesn't fit the context because Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 goes on to say that Christ holds all things together. And again, the phrasing is in the in the in the Jewish background, the all, many other Jewish texts talks about is the is the divine logos that holds all things together. So all things there is referring to all things, the entire creation, not the new creation, right? The Jewish text in the Old Testament or, or in the intertestamental text is not talking about new creation. It's talking about all things, uh, the entire creation, heaven and earth. So um, you cannot say that, that all things there is referring to new creation. It's referring to the entire creation. And again, it talks about Jesus being the create, involved in creating all things there. Uh, and also not only that, but also holding all things together, which implies that he is omnipresent, right? Holding all things and must also be knowing all things in order to hold them. His omnipresence and omnipotence is being manifested there in holding all things together. So there is a divine attribute for you. And therefore, the conclusion follows that Jesus is truly divine. And I also 
defended um, John chapter 20, verse 20, 28, and my Lord and my God, I already explained that the phrasing with the personal possessive pronoun, you know, my, right, is in, and in the context of Lord and God together, can only be taken to refer to Yahweh. Uh, and I don't think they'll rebutted this point about the possessive pronouns together with, and also uh, the genre uh, I don't, uh, of First Corinthians. Uh, again, I don't think they'll rebutted this point. And the epikaleo uh, that is used in the text, right, uh, in, the, in the Jewish text referring to Yahweh, I don't think they rebutted this point as well. I mean, he claimed that epikaleo is can be used of Messiah, but again, you don't find this, right, in the, in the Jewish text. I mean, that is something that he invented. Uh, the Unitarians, that is something that Unitarians invented, right, a claim that Unitarians invented, but you don't find evidence of this, right, in the Jewish text. It's always used for believers. When you use of believers, is referring to Yahweh. And here it's being referred to Kurios Jesus. We imply that, which imply that Kurios here is referring to Yahweh here. And then Philippians 2, 6. Now, um, they will claim that essence cannot be given up. But, uh, and, and so, but then I'm not claiming that um, Christ gave up his divine essence. I'm saying that Christ gave up the use of his divine powers. So it's not ontological kenosis. It's functional kenosis. And this is perfectly consistent with him you know, having the divine nature, which is implied by the word morphe, as I mentioned, and the use of Jewish religious context not referring to idols, as they will claim, but when referring to Jewish religious context, um, and I mentioned Josephus as an example, that is, is referring to that which uh, that has the underlying reality of being God. And this is also evident from the context when it says um, that uh, to be equal with God, right? That's the phrasing for being ontologically equal with God the Father. And so Jesus had all that. And if you want to find out more, you can listen to Dale's debate with Chris Date. Uh, I think Chris Date explained this point very well. Um, and I don't have time. I didn't have time to go about to go through Matthew 28 and other passages, but there are other passages which also imply that Jesus is truly divine. And uh, you can check out my book, The Origins of Divine Christology, which ex exegetes these passages in detail and explain why these passages imply that Jesus is truly divine. So, as I said earlier on, any one of these four arguments is already sufficient to establish, establish conclusion, and I already established the conclusion. And finally, well, what arguments did Dale give in response? Now he claims something about the unity of God, and he keeps saying that the Father equals. God, but as I already said, he failed to exclude the representational interpretation and also the divine priority unity interpretation, which we find in Genesis. Well, we didn't have time to discuss that, but you can check out the article which I cited earlier on in my presentation, published in the Journal of Old Testament Studies. And they would, uh, well, he didn't present this argument. Um, now, they also claim about uh, Christ's death, apparent limitation of knowledge, etc. But I already said that this inference is invalid because one person can have different parts with different properties. And this is implied by Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. And moreover, there are other passages which imply that Christ having divine properties, such as John chapter 16, which in the context imply that Jesus is omniscient. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 implies that Jesus holds all things together, which manifests his omnipresence and omnipotence. And Romans chapter 11, 36 says, true God are all things. And Colossians, uh, Corinthians 8, 6 says, true Jesus are all things, and God is eternal and uncreated, therefore Jesus is also eternal and created. So on the basis of all these passages, we can conclude that the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus is truly divine. All right, and I'm going to have to end you there, Dr. Loke. It sounded like you came to a good stopping point anyway. So go ahead, uh, Dr. Tuggy, and give your five-minute closing, and this will conclude the stream. I argue that according to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus does not have the following essential qualities. Uh, immortality, the New Testament doctrine is just that the Son died. Dr. Loke has to read into it that, no, really, it was a part of the Son that died. The problem with that is that to die, you have to have a human life to lose, which would imply that that part of the Son was a human person. 
and then you'll have a human person, and it looks like a divine person too, which is uh, does not fit the New Testament. I argue that a morally perfect being can't be tempted. I think that's why it says in one place that God can't be tempted. Dr. Loke mentioned impure motives in his rebuttal. I'm not talking about any especially dirty motives, uh, just he's hungry. And because he's hungry, that's a motive to turn the bread into stone like Satan suggested. And so that's being tempted because it would be wrong for him to do that. So the motives can be just very normal motives, but in a context of weakness, they can be a motive to do something wrong. I argue that divinity requires uh, being ultimate in authority. The New Testament Jesus is not ultimate in authority. He serves God. He says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. And, you know, he's been appointed to be the judge of the human race and things like that. He doesn't seem to be ultimate in authority. As human, he's created as uh, if he's fully divine, he would be uncreated. I don't see how you get rid of that contradiction. About perfection and knowledge, I think it's really important. We didn't have enough time to discuss this. It's important to see that omniscience by itself is not enough for being perfect in knowledge. So if you had two beings, both of them know everything but one being has all the truths in his consciousness and the other being has 1% of truth in his consciousness and 99% of the truths in his preconscious. The first being's knowledge is better. It's better to be fully just directly aware of everything than to just be able to recall everything with a little bit of effort. So I agree that God is by his essence omniscience, but there's a lot more that's required for the best, greatest kind of power than just omniscience. Lastly, I argue that divine being has to be perfect in power, and it looks like Jesus isn't. About the Father being the only God in the New Testament, I encourage the listener to do a word study uh, of discussions in the New Testament that mention the one God or the only God and see who they're talking about there. About Philippians 2, I see Jesus there undergoing a transition from being in the morphe of God to being in the morphe of a slave, so you know it's not an essence you can't lose an essence. You can't trade in an essence. Moreover, the morphe of slave is not classically understood to be an essence. It's merely a condition that a person can fall into. My Lord and my God, I think I gave the proper contextual reading of that, which is better, which fits John better than his reading. Uh, Even though his is traditional, there's a really good Unitarian Christian Alliance video on that my Lord and my God passage. I encourage you to look that up to review that. The human Jesus, yeah, I think now that he's exalted to God's right hand, he can be called upon just as he can be worshipped, right? I mean, you might assume that only God can be worshipped, but that's not New Testament teaching. You might assume that only God can be called upon, but actually it talks about calling upon the name of the Lord and means Jesus. The way that Dr. Loke argued in this debate is he shoots straight for full divinity, right? He doesn't want to get into every single component property. That would be too hard. So he's like, I'm going to establish full divinity, but he does this on a handful of unclear passages, and I don't think it's enough. Um, It's not enough to just put out possible readings. You have to have overall the most plausible readings given the entire context. On his view, I think only the Trinity is a God, and so the Father and Son are just persons within God. Neither one is himself a God. But the problem with that is it contradicts the clear New Testament teaching that the Father is the one God, and he's the only God. So... In conclusion, I would say don't let people scare you that the deity of Christ is a required teaching. If it was required, it would be understandable. It would be something you could grasp, and it would be clearly taught in Scripture, and it's not. And it's clearly not an essential part of the gospel, as evidenced by Peter's sermon in Acts 2, and by even how evangelicals counsel people to get saved. They don't talk about the deity of Christ. They just talk about him as as the one who atoned by his uh, sacrificial death to bring us to God. 
So I agree that you should believe in and trust the Lord Jesus, but I think we should test all traditional Catholic and Protestant claims that he is God or that he's fully divine by scripture. Finally, I want to thank Dr. Loke for a good, clean debate. He's an excellent scholar, and it's a privilege to argue with him. And I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface. Maybe we could argue again sometime. Uh, And thanks also to Jordan Hampton and his excellent Analytic Christian channel for arranging the debate. Thank you both for joining me. And I want to mention your books. So Dr. Tuggy has a book, Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? You can check that out for... Uh, more from him and Dr. Loke's book, The Origin of Divine Christology. You can check that out for more. Thank you both for joining me. I really enjoyed it. And thank you everyone for watching. Thanks. See you next time. Next week, a few reflections on this debate and also some interesting written correspondence between Dr. Loke and I. This week's thinking music has been the track Saturday Instrumental by Josh Woodward. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. You'll also want to check out that blog post for many links relevant to this episode. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.